Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. As always, we're thankful for your presence. If you have your Bibles, you turn to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is where we were last week. We'll finish up here this evening. Lord's will, we'll be talking about David's restoration. We're continuing our thoughts about David's rise and fall. And last week, if you were here, we talked about uh, some of the things that David did were surprising, and some of the things he did were not surprising. We ended with what God did was not surprising. There is always this connection between God and us, and then us and one another. It's always that way. And so whenever you're reading the Bible, chances are good you're learning something about God, maybe about yourself or human beings in general, but you're going to ultimately deal with that connection of our interactions with God, ourselves, and each other. And David is the one who has been driving the events that have taken place in these two chapters. And so as we get to the end of chapter 11, some of the things that God does is not surprising. Among them are these. Number one, it's not surprising that God saw what David did. That's not surprising. The Bible is very clear here that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, is what the Bible says. David himself wrote Psalm 139. In that psalm, here are some of the things he said, beginning in verse number 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the warnings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely, the darkness shall cover me, even there the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. We can hide things from each other, and that's one of the temptations of sin. You can hide it, but nothing can be hid from God. It's an important reminder what the proverb writer says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. When I was growing up, we used to sing a song. It was haunting to me as a child, much better these days, but the refrain of that song said, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. And then, as if to punish me, it would just keep saying it, watching you, watching you, watching you. Every day, find the course you pursue. Watching you, watching you. He's, it just kept going on and on and on. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. And while it did cause me fear as a child, it did ingrain in me the understanding that nothing can be hidden from God. It's not surprising that God saw what David did. Number two, it's not surprising that God didn't stop it. God saw it, but it's not surprising that God didn't stop David from doing what he was doing. In fact, it's because he made us the way that he did. God honors the freedom he gave us. Genesis 1, 26, 27, God made us in his image. And as a result of that, God lets man be free, even if that freedom is to reject him. You see that as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6. God told them not to eat of the tree, and yet he allowed them to choose, and they chose to disobey. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4 and verse 20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The father shall not bear the iniquity of the son, neither shall the son bear the iniquity of the father. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. God will and does allow us to choose. It's not surprising that God saw it, but it's also not surprising that God didn't stop it. 
God will allow us to make our own choices, and he will not override our free will. You remember Acts chapter 5, the events between Ananias and Sapphira as they came before Peter, and both of them said lies to him. Verse number 1 of that chapter says, But a man named Ananias with Sapphira sold a piece of property. They kept back part of the price for himself with his wife, full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, they laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, they were not obligated to do this. Maybe as they end Acts chapter 4, it says that they were selling their goods in Acts chapter 2 as well, and Barnabas' actions are there recorded that he was this son of exhortation or encouragement. He sold a land, he brought it, and he just laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, to distribute, to distribute to those who have needs. I don't know if they were caught up in that and they wanted the same press, but they didn't want to actually make the commitment. I do know they weren't obligated to do it. And now that they're there before Peter, they have kept back, chosen to, keep back part of the price of the land. It's what Peter says that helps you appreciate God won't stop you. He will let you make his choices. Peter says in Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To keep back some of the price of the land. Verse number four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? When it was just the land, it belonged to you. You could have done with anything you want to. You could have kept the land. It was yours. While it remained unsold, was it not yours? And then he says this, after it was sold. So now we've converted the land to money, and now you have the money. But after it was sold, was it not under your control? These are your choices, and God's not going to stop them. In fact, it's recorded in people that God has sent the prophet, talked to them, gave them a command and instructions, played with them, and they have just flat out said no. We know what God says on the subject, and effectively it goes something like this. The prophet says it, and the people say, effectively, go tell God we said no. And he doesn't stop it. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse number 16 is where it's recorded. The prophet Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see, ask for the old path or the ancient path. Where is the good way? And walk in it, and you will find rest unto your souls. But they said, we will not walk. When you get back, tell God we said no. It's not surprising that God saw it. It's not surprising that God didn't stop it. God didn't stop David from looking at Bathsheba. God didn't stop David for sending Bathsheba. And God didn't stop Bathsheba from saying yes and coming. And the reason for this is really very simple. Because God won't stop us from our choices. And that allows God to judge us righteously. When God arrived in the garden to talk to Adam and Eve, he asked them a question. Did you eat of the tree? How are you going to judge me? I'm going to judge you by what you did. Did you eat of the tree? The choice was yours. You didn't have to do it. Did you do it? That's the question. Adam tried to lie, get out of it, finagle. The woman you gave me, she gave me. But he did. He does say at the end, probably about verse 9, he does say, and I did eat. Well, that's why you can be judged. Because God's not going to stop your choices. He's not going to force you to obey him. He's not going to make you disobey him. You get to choose. It's not surprising. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may give an account of the things which he has done in his body, whether they be good or bad. What are you going to use to judge us? Your actions? Were those your words? Were those your thoughts? Were those your deeds? Well, that's what will judge you. How are you going to do that? By not stopping you by certainly giving you the instruction, helping you understand what's right, what's wrong, giving you all that you need, but then you get to decide. Colossians 3.25 says, He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. There's no respect to a person. 
It's not surprising that God saw what David did. It's not surprising that God didn't stop David from doing it. It's not simply how God allows us to be judged righteously. It's also how God allows us to repent. Because if you can make one decision, you can make another one. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, in that first gospel sermon, Peter effectively says this, you killed him, God raised him. They get near the end of that sermon and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, who wants to do something different? The very people who had a hand in murdering Jesus now wants to make a new decision. You know what God will allow? He'll allow you to make the first decision and he'll allow you to repent. How do you get to do that? He won't override your free will. These very ones who had a hand in murdering Jesus now understands that that was the very Christ, and he sits at the right hand of God, and they now say, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know what God says, repent and be baptized. They get to change. How? Same choice. Same ability. It's not surprising that God saw what David did. Neither is it surprising that God didn't stop it. Number three, it's not surprising that God was displeased with David. You go back to chapter 12, or the end of, rather, chapter 11 in 2 Samuel, and you read all of the events that transpire, and we talked about them last week, how David went out, and how David sent, and how David took, and how she was pregnant, and how you just keep marching event after event. He sent for Uriah, and he didn't go down to his house. He got him drunk. He sent him again. He didn't go. You just read it. Read it. You never read about God until the last verse. After seeing it, not stopping it, it's verse 27. When the time of morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Sometimes when you and I think about God, we very often think about his wrath and think about his anger. And so you might read the word displeased and think God is angry with David. No, displeased means displeased. It means to tremble or to quiver, to be broken up. Any violent actions, figuratively, to fear, be grievous. David has grieved God. It's the same word that's used of Samuel when they asked for a king. 1 Samuel 8 and verse number 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto God. We read about God's reaction to man's sin as early as Genesis 6. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, verse number five, and it grieved God at his heart. David is displeased God, grieved him, displeased him. It's not surprising that what David did is displeasing to God. Number four, it's not surprising that God sent a prophet to David. That's how chapter 12 opens. Now, you should know and bear in mind that in chapter 12, about verse number 16, the child will die. We'll talk about that momentarily, but do know the child has been born. How old the child is, I don't know. But it, the, the events have had long enough for the child to be born. The prophet comes. David has had ample time to turn and to repent, but he hasn't. David has had ample time to make amends for what he has done, but he hasn't. At the very least, nine months have elapsed and no change in David yet. In fact, he's married Bathsheba. She's pregnant with child, and they're going forward. And so it's not surprising that God sent a prophet. One of the things about God we learn very early in the Bible is that God always draws near when his children sin against him. 
It seems odd at first, I suppose, because the typical thought is sin repulses God and drives him away and drives a wedge between him and his children. But as you read the Bible from the first sin unto this one, there is a constant refrain, and it's this. When God's children sin against him, he moves toward them. As early as Genesis chapter 3, after the sin of verse number 6, verse 7 to verse number 8, you will find Adam and Eve hiding and attempting to cover themselves. You'll also find them hearing the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day to them. When he arrives, he'll ask them questions. Did you eat? Who told you you were naked? And so on. But the very next chapter, chapter 4, when Cain sins, he doesn't offer by faith. He's of the wicked one. When he doesn't do what God says, God rejects Cain and his offering. And it's right after that that God comes to Cain and says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. Sometime later, Cain takes his brother out and he kills him. And then God comes back to Cain. What have you done? Where is your brother? You just keep going through the Bible, and what you'll find is it's not surprising that when man sins against God, God moves toward man because God wants the relationship. And so in Genesis chapter 6, when every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually, it's God who moves. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's God who says, my spirit shall not always strive. Does that mean it will strive? Yes. While the ark is preparing, God's Spirit will strive with man. Why? Hoping for him to return. It's what God does. It's not surprising that God sent a prophet. When Achan stole the Babylonian garments and Joshua finally found him out, he said, give God the glory. What have you done? God came to David, confronts David, the prophet, with the message, the parable there, beginning in verse 1 down to verse number 4, about the man with the lamb, the one little you lamb that he nourishes and cherishes and treats as his own and lets it eat in his home and treats it just like a child. That one taken away from him by another. David, upon hearing this, thou art the man, he says, well, it's God who's coming to David to confront him with the sin. Why? Hoping David will repent, wanting the relationship. That's what God does. It's not surprising here because it's the what God does all the way through the Bible. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8 says, while we were yet sinners, what did God do? He came. He came near in the person of Jesus Christ while we were yet sinners. God came to man. It's what God does. So it's not surprising. God is coming right now, every single day, through the preaching of the gospel, appealing to the world, calling out to anyone who will. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 14, whereunto he called you by the gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's God doing? Go ye into all the world. To do what? So God can call people. But what are those people? Sinners. It's not surprising that when man sins, God comes near because God desires reconciliation. He has no pleasure when the wicked perish, Ezekiel 18, 23 to 25. It's his plea that they will turn and relieve off the wickedness and restore the relationship with him. In the New Testament, a great record of it is Luke 15. What will he do? If one of his children returns home, he will receive them. Number five, 
It's not surprising that God spared David's life. He did. In 2 Samuel 12 and verse number 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Well, why shouldn't he die? And why wouldn't he die? The law would have demanded that the adulterer and the adulteress be put to death. The law would have had demands for that. Somebody might say, well, God just loved David more than that's why he just, well, that's not true. God is not a respecter of persons. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, God doesn't judge faces. 1 Samuel 16, 7, look not at a statue. The Lord doesn't see as man see it. God looks on the heart. So it's not that God favored David any more than anybody else. Somebody has offered or suggested God had more work for David to do, and so he sought to use David to further his plans rather than kill him. Well, that could be true. Romans 9, 14 to 24 clearly says God can make choices and have mercy on whom he'll have mercy, whom he will, he hardened, and he made choices all the way through from Jacob and Esau all the way to Pharaoh and all the way. He could have. It's possible, I suppose. It could be David repented and God had mercy or relented. Now, that is an absolute fact. That's what God does. Now, whether I know any more about this, I do know that's true about God, regardless of what the specifics are here. That's God's way. Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4, it's what makes Jonah angry that God would relent when the Assyrians, the Ninevites, repented. They did, and God did not punish. What's at least noteworthy is that David is also a judge. David was just presented with a trial, a case. He just adjudicated it, right? A few verses earlier, there was a man brought forth who acted selfishly without regard for his fellow man, abused his power, forcefully took a lamb and killed that man's precious love. And while he had flocks and herds to spare, and upon hearing those grievous actions, David was moved. And he said, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. David said, he shall pay, restore fourfold. And then Nathan said, you are the man. And so here is a man who has done it, heard the case, and it's actually him. But what did he do? Well, he didn't go off in a blind rage and kill somebody. He said, by way of judgment, he deserves to die. Instead, he'll make restitution. You know what? God did that exact same thing with David. While maybe deserving to die, the verdict was, he shall pay, restore, fourfold. And he did. The man in the, in the parable was to restore fourfold lambs. David would restore fourfold. He would. Justice and mercy are God's self-description, Exodus 34, 6. And the psalmist says that we should give praise to God for his mercy endures forever, Psalm 136. The word mercy is the disposition that seeks to overlook wrong or to give it less than it is due. So it's not surprising that God had mercy on David. Number six, and lastly, it's not surprising that God allowed David to suffer consequences. That, too, is not surprising. You know, the forgiveness of sin does not stop consequences. It doesn't do that. It forgives sins. And so, your sins have been covered. Your sins have been forgiven. God has taken away your sins. But it's not surprising that David had to suffer consequences. David said he will restore fourfold, and David did. 
Notice 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, down to verse number 12. This is Nathan talking to David by way of consequence. He says, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Coincidentally, she'll often be referred to that way, the wife of Uriah the Hittite whom David took. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I would do this thing openly. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you, verse 11, from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives before the sun. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and all under the sun. Those consequences will be meted out in David's life. In fact, if you start reading here in chapter 12 and you just keep reading forward, you'll read 2 Samuel 23, verse 1 and verse 2. These are the last words of David. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. And then David gives the, the psalm there. But between 12 and 23, you'll read of these consequences. David will give four sons. Four of his sons will die. The child in question here will die. Amnon, his son, will die. Absalom, his son, will die. In fact, Amnon will die at the hands of Absalom. And Amnon will die because he rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And then Absalom will kill Amnon for raping his sister, Tamar. And then Adonijah will be killed by Solomon because he seeks to take the kingdom by asking for the woman that warmed David near the end of his life. David is going to suffer with these things and these consequences all of his life. The sword will never depart David's house. It's not surprising that God allowed consequences to be meted out in David's life for the very choices which David made. God said, you did it in secret, but I will do it before all this. Well, if you start reading the rest of David's life now, I'm not going to suggest to you, friends, that David was not faithful because he was. I'm not going to suggest to you that, 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 that David wasn't restored because he was. But David did not escape the consequences that went with these actions. And he suffered them the rest of his life. And sometimes God's children can find themselves in similar straits. And we can make some very horrific decisions and do some things that are completely wrong. And sometimes people get it in their mind that if God forgives me, then he should, he should fix it so I don't suffer. Well, that's just not the case. It's not the case at all. David involved other people. Those other people suffered, and they will continue to suffer. David's rise, well, there are some surprising elements to David's rise. It's really meteoric. You go back and start again and read this young man's life and all that he did, it was kind of surprising. David's fall well, was equally surprising because of the disposition of his heart and his faithfulness to God and and, and the things in question, it's, it's kind of surprising. On the other hand, as we talked last week, it's not all that surprising. If you do the things that he did, it's not terribly surprising that you fail. If you're in the wrong place, you're looking at the wrong things, you're thinking about the wrong things, you're trying to hide. Just, you start down the list, it's not all that surprising. But it's not surprising what God did. Because no matter what we do, God is always God. He saw it not surprising but he didn't stop it because he won't override anybody's free will he wasn't pleased with it the thing that David did displeased the Lord but he sent a prophet it's not surprising because God wants the relationship 
he had mercy. He spared David's life. Again, not surprising because God is a God of mercy. But he did allow David to suffer the consequences. And it probably lasted David a lifetime. The sorrow and the sadness that he experienced. And God didn't stop that either. These events will lead us to our study next week. Psalm 51. And if you'd like to get ahead and read it a few times this week, that'll be great. Because next Sunday night, Lord's will, we'll study David's restoration. We've studied his fall, his rise. We've studied his fall. Boy, it will be greatly encouraging to study his restoration. This is not how David's life ends. It gets better. It may be the case tonight that you're not a Christian. You know, the Bible is so relevant. The information is so prevalent, so, so urgent right now and so useful in our lives that you can find yourself maybe in the very same circumstance. You could rise. Maybe you could fall. But in God and in Jesus, there's always great hope of restoration. It's what God wants. It's what God desires. Hopefully it's the same for you. Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Would you change your heart and your mind, and would you give it to him? Would you repent? David did. Would you confess the name of Jesus, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, allow God to save you and to save you if you aren't his child, or to restore you and reconcile you if you are. Friends, it won't be surprising. God wants you back. If you want him, he certainly wants you. We can help you in any way tonight. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.